Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number three in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, February the 15th. First, I talk to Adam Bremo, the co-founder of online social learning platform Open Learning. Open Learning's unique social and interactive approach to learning has been adopted with great success by leading institutions and government bodies around the world. Open Learning has had significant international traction thanks to its innovative model of online learning that is focused on student engagement and fostering vibrant learning communities in courses. Open Learning currently supports over 1,500,000 students across 5,000 courses, with thousands more joining every week. And then I'll be talking to economist Jonathan Boimel about what's happening in Australia's housing market and how it's affecting the economy. But now, let's talk to Adam Bremer. And I want to apologise for the sound quality of the interview. The Skype connection wasn't terrific. Adam, tell us about open learning. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, so Open Learning is, a, is an online learning platform uh, designed to solve two of the big challenges in education. Uh, one is access to education, and the other is the quality of education. Um, so we started the platform about uh, six years ago, and in that time, we really dedicated ourselves to solving these challenges. Um, and when you really look at it, even today, 
a lot of online courses around the world um, are still actually very passive. You know, a lot of content delivery, a lot of uh, documents and videos. So the goal of open learning is really to make it possible to have online courses where there's more collaboration, more student interaction, more project-based learning. Um, and students are able to develop uh, more critical thinking and practical skills online rather than just, um, you know, reading uh, documents and, uh, and doing quizzes. So that, that's sort of the, the idea of the platform. Um, as a company, uh, Open Learning is based in Sydney, Australia, with offices in uh, Malaysia and staff around the world. Um, and we support about uh, 75 education providers, uh, about 1.5 million students, um, and many thousands of courses. Um, and we're all sort of dedicated to try and improve the quality of, of those courses. Yeah, that's right. Right, okay. And uh, and so who are the education providers that you're tied up with? Um, so we primarily work with universities. Um, in Australia, we work with UNSW Sydney, uh, University of Technology, Macquarie um, University, um, Charles Sturt University, um, and uh, quite a few others. Um, in Malaysia, we work with about um, half of the universities in the country, so about 20 public universities, uh, including National University of Malaysia, University of Sciences, um, and then also a number of other sort of uh, government departments, um, teacher training organizations, uh, and professional bodies. What, what's, the, what's the aim here? Is to help universities bridge the gap between leaving university and not being able to get a job? Is that one of the issues that you're trying to tackle? Um, I think we, we do try and solve that one, um, and we try and solve it in a couple of ways, but primarily we see ourselves as enabling the universities to design higher quality learning experiences that help the students um, develop more critical thinking, uh, analytical, uh, entrepreneurial skills. Now, this happens in the existing courses that are run at the university as well. So a university might work with open learning to redesign some of their uh, blended or on-campus courses uh, from first year all the way through the postgraduate. Um, or they may also work with us for short courses so they can provide additional uh, courses to students to help them uh, get jobs or develop um, those skills. Uh, but I guess it's, it's quite a range. So I guess if you go to uh, Open Learning's website, you'll see a whole range of courses uh, but at the same time, we also work directly with the university to redesign the existing courses that they run on campus. Obviously, you see Asia as a real growth uh, growth area, don't you? Yeah, we do. We do, yes. And uh, and you have a very strong presence in Malaysia. Is that right? Yes, we do. Um, we have an office in Malaysia, and we work with, um, I'd say, about half or the majority of the universities in the country. Right, right, right. Now, you recently did a capital raise and used some of the funds to focus on expanding in Southeast Asia, didn't you? Um, yes, so we raised additional funding. Um, we closed our Series A uh, funding round earlier this year. We raised $8.5 million Australian. Um, now, that, that's going to a few things. One is um, continuing to build out the platform, um, expanding in Australia, uh, working with more universities in Australia, um, but also expanding across uh, Southeast Asia but primarily in, in Malaysia and Singapore as a first step. Okay, and, uh, and you're looking to expand and diversify your product offering. Is that right? Yeah, we do that as well. So, um, you know, open learning as a platform enables, um, sort of enables us and any education provider to launch an, an education business. So we're looking at new products we offer both on the platform and, and in new industries. So tell us about these new products. 
So some of the things that uh, we're working on are ways for students who are taking courses on open learning to showcase their skills and capabilities um, rather um, than just rely on a sort of a CV or a resume as they might do might have done in the past. So one of the ways that works on open learning is um, by students developing portfolios. So when a student takes a course on open learning, whether that course is run by a university or not, um, all of the evidence, all of the coursework can be collected or, or curated into a portfolio that the student can then show to an employer. Um, and then the employer can get a good sense of what that's, what the student's skills are um, beyond what it says on the CV. So, you know, on the CV, it might say uh, Bachelor of Accounting. Uh, but obviously, there are many courses the student did, and there are many activities and projects and discussions the student had during that three- or four-year degree. Um, so it's those discussions, those projects, those assignments that are captured in the portfolio. So the portfolio is one of the things that we're working on. Um, the other, uh, one of the other things that we're working on as well is um, a, a new website uh, on top of open learning um, called teach.com.au. And teach.com.au is a site dedicated um, to teachers for teacher professional development. Um, so teachers... Uh, you know, have to do about 20 hours of professional development per year, um, and our goal is to make that as as uh, as effective and fun uh, and efficient as possible. So we have a subscription service, a bit like a, a sort of a Spotify or Netflix almost, but with courses where a teacher can sign up, take as many courses as they want, um, and uh, meet their sort of 20 hours. So that's just a couple of the things that we're working on. So, but these courses are all accredited, aren't they? Yeah. So those the course, yeah, the courses in teach.com.au are uh, accredited by NESA uh, in New South Wales, um, and we're exploring uh, accreditation in different states as well. Right. So, uh, what are your plans for uh, for open learning? I mean, how much more expansion are you planning? Um, so we're always growing. Um, <laughs> I'd say uh, over the past year, we've doubled our student base. We've doubled the number of courses, um, and we're we're on track to double the number of education providers as well. Um, so I guess there's growth in that term, in those terms. But um, for us, it's about trying to ensure that um, we are enabling our, our partners and, and our clients to transform their business and the way they deliver education. Um, because I think even um, at a large university, sometimes it's only the early adopters that actually start using these kinds of products. You know, maybe when you go into university, we get sort of the 5 to 10% who are really excited about, you know, using new technology and um, trying new things. So although, you know, we have quite strong reach at the moment, part of our goal is actually to work even more with our existing partners um, and just help bring more uh, lecturers and more educators uh, up, to, up to speed with sort of the, the newest technology and, um, and pedagogy. So the aim would be to engage students much more than what they do now at universities. Is that right? Um, yeah. So one of the things that uh, Open Learning does very well um, is increase student engagement. Uh, and that comes from having a range of or enabling uh, lecturers to create a range of activities that drive engagement. So, for example, um, rather than just uploading a PowerPoint, docu PowerPoint slide or a PDF document, um, a student or a course on Open Learning would have activities where students would create something and share it with the community. Maybe they find things uh, in, in the real world or online, and they share those back with the community as well. Um, they get feedback from each other. They discuss ideas. So it's quite a rich experience. 
and there's a lot more student interaction than in a traditional learning platform. And so, and the feedback you're getting from the students and universities is what? Um, the feedback has been uh, has been quite exciting and and um, and fantastic. Um, overall, uh, we see a magnitude increase in student interactions um, on a per student basis. Um, in many courses, we see 30 to 50 times more student interaction than a traditional learning management system. Um, and But more than that, we see students actually producing portfolios of work that showcase their skills. Um, so when a student finishes a course or finishes a degree, uh, rather than just walking away with a certificate or a credential, they also have a collection of work that they've done that they can look back on and, and show to employers. So I guess we see, we see uh, significant increases both in the uh, qualitative and, and quantitative feedback. Well, Adam, it's been delightful to talk to you and we'll watch Open Learning with great interest and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All the best and we'll speak soon. And now let's talk to economist Jonathan Boimel. Jonathan Boimel, the latest figures show building approvals have tanked and house prices are heading down. What's your view about this? Well, yeah, the downturn in, in housing prices has accelerated over the last three months. Uh, Melbourne house prices have fallen at their fastest quarterly um, rate on record, uh, 4.5%. Um, what's particularly interesting is while the top-end property prices um, have been falling for some time, um, the less volatile bottom quarter of the market um, is now being affected. Um, and this will have a broader impact um, on the broader economy. Um, price falls in the property market are now are now broader. Um, Which means what? That uh, this is houses that are less expensive are also falling? Exactly. So this segment tends to be less volatile. Uh, we don't see such significant um, movements in, in house prices. So a weakness in this segment suggests more of a persistent problem in the housing market. It's great for first home buyers, um, but the flip side of that is that people who have purchased um, a dwelling in the last couple of years are likely to see negative equity um, and households that have purchased um, houses in um, the less expensive part of the market are probably more sensitive to declines in their net wealth um, than others. So it's more likely that declines in prices in this segment of the market will flow through to retail sales. Um, and we know anecdotally that in the lead up to Christmas um, last year, um, we saw a pullback in sales, which suggests the potential for uh, more retail uh, failures this year. Um, retail sales volume growth is really heavily dependent on income and wealth. Um, and when you see wealth being hit, not just in terms of the top end of town, but um, homeowners who own less expensive properties, um, you're likely to see a hit in terms of retail sales. Now, it may be a coincidence um, that we've seen this segment of the housing market being hit at the same time as retail sales um, have taken a bit of a dive, um, but there may be more to it than that. It may not necessarily be, be a coincidence. And as you said, this is against the backdrop of a reduction in residential building approvals. Um, we've got, as a result, falling dwelling investment. Um, 
So yeah, with a n- number of things, number of things happening. Uh, of course, the house prices and uh, is, is a great wealth effect, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what's interesting, though, is when it was restricted to the most expensive properties, we actually didn't tend to see uh, an impact on the broader economy. Um, but now that we're seeing a decline in the prices of less expensive houses, um, we're likely to see an impact on the on the broader economy, and that is a that is a concern. So that would be translated into, say, things like retail sales, and apparently uh, retailers. There's anecdotal evidence Correct. that uh, retailers had their worst Christmas for years. Correct. Correct. So again, it may be a coincidence, um, but there may be more to it than that. Um, We know that um, from the NAB survey, um, Australian business conditions and profitability also collapsed um, at the end of 2018. So we've got a number of of elements coming together. Uh, Again, against the backdrop of relatively strong employment numbers, but yeah, there is... There is mounting concern. I think um, you know we've got a cash rate that's been held at 1.5% for the last 28 months. Uh, I think now we'd say there's a zero chance of any rate rise this year. Um, there's scope for the RBA to bring rates down. Um, and I think on balance, looking at the risks um, to the economy, which, which we just discussed... I think, on balance, um, we're likely to see a, a rate reduction this year as we see some broadening of the economic impact of the housing market downturn. So you're saying the RBA might actually move this year to cut rates? Sure, sure. There are things that can be done before then. Um, APRA um, might remove some of the remaining restrictions um, that they've put on lending. Um we know, though, that APRA has removed restrictions on interest-only and investor lending, um, but investor lending still fell 23% over 2000, 2018. I mean, it really hasn't, hasn't recovered um, yet. Uh, lenders are also worried about the findings of the Banking um, Royal Commission, um, but greater clarity around that, I'm, I'm not sure whether um, we're going to see... Um, a significant uptick in, in lending lending activity. But uh, assuming that the Royal Commission will bring in recommendations for more stringent controls on banks, that would affect banks' lending, wouldn't it? Yeah, depending upon the nature of the, the, nature of the restrictions. Um, but APRA has scope um, to relax some of the restrictions um, that, that they imposed. Um, earlier. Um, There is, I think, though, a real concern about um, how potential lenders' ability to finance mortgages uh, was assessed. Um, So it's likely that, you know, most most people who took out loans were, in fact, in less of a position to repay the loan than... um, the measures that were used would suggest. Um, so any any um, action in that space, yes, may have an impact on uh, on on the volume of loans. And that would it would go without saying that those who don't have a high uh, 
who don't have a great debt-to-income ratio would therefore struggle to get money from the banks now than they did before. Correct, correct. So it remains to be seen whether um, you know, action is taken on those ratios. Um, it'll be interesting, interesting to see. But on the flip side, um, I think we're seeing that prospective homeowners, particular first homeowners, um, are more optimistic. Okay, so based on survey data, people are feeling that now, right, is a better time to buy a home than, let's say, three months ago. So on the demand side right, of the, the mortgage market, um, we might see um, an increase in activity. just depends what happens on the, on the supply side as a result of, of the recommendations that come out from the, the Banking Royal Commission and the extent to which the government agrees to, uh, to adopt those recommendations. So uh, there is hope for prospective homeowners? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is good news for first-home buyers. Um, and again, those who have been hit are those who would have purchased a home in the last two or three years. Again, this ta- you know, these price reductions take place against the backdrop of uh, um, trough-to-peak increases in house prices of you know 60% and 80% in Melbourne and Sydney. And you need to put that in, in context. That which, are, which are quite massive increases. Which are quite massive increases. That being said, we know that people tend to value losses more than they value gains. Um, so I think what's happening to the price of assets that people are holding, um, even after years of, of gains will actually be front and centre. Um, even though on balance, you know, the vast majority of the vast majority of, of homeowners um, would have seen increases in equity. Um, I think recent declines in house prices, and again these losses will loom large um, for psychological reasons. Uh, and a result may feed into to retail. And, uh, and consumer confidence as well. And consumer confidence, absolutely. I think with employment um, looking relatively solid, I don't think we're currently experiencing a perfect storm um, of adverse economic indicators. Um, so if employment remains solid, um, we should be okay. Arrears will be under control. Um, but I think, yeah, we're likely to see sustained declines uh, in, in house prices, um, hopefully not at the pace which we've seen them over the last, the last three months. But again, there's a lot that the RBA can do. Um, there, are, there are steps that APRA can, can take also to wind back some of the remaining um, constraints that they put on, put on lending. So the $64 question finally is how long is this going to continue? That's a very good question. Um, I think some of the indicators um, that we're seeing suggests that prices still have um, a way to go. Um, we've got a pipeline of new apartment buildings that'll put um, downward pressure on prices. Um, we've seen a reduction, as you mentioned, uh, in residential building approvals. Um, again, um, that's that's likely to uh, to impact 
prices. Um, so, yeah, we have to just watch this space. Jonathan Boimel will be fascinating to watch, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, congressional negotiators say they've reached a deal in principle to fund the US government and avoid another shutdown. As always, President Donald Trump will hold the fate of any potential agreement in his hands. Now, President Donald Trump is playing down the threat of a second partial government shutdown as Republicans in Congress clear a path for him to accept a deal on border security funding. Trump is likely to grudgingly sign the legislation and then immediately use his executive authority to fund additional border measures. If passed, the spending plan would keep the government running past the February the 15th deadline. It would avoid reopening fresh wounds of the 800,000 federal workers who missed two paychecks during a 35-day partial closure in December and January. The measure's passage depends on Trump's support. Now, no details have been released. Talks had stalled on the detention of undocumented migrants and funding for President Trump's border wall. Hurdles remained, and Trump's ultimate backing was in doubt after quick opposition emerged from conservatives. But lawmakers on both sides said they were motivated to find agreement by the looming spectre of another government shutdown on Friday night, three weeks after the last one ended. Now, Donald Trump has reservations about a tentative government funding deal that needs his support to pass. Still, he doesn't think parts of the government will shut down this weekend for the second time since December. As he said, I can't say I'm happy, I can't say I'm thrilled with the agreement to prevent a partial closure. He didn't immediately commit to signing the spending measure if Congress passes it. However, he said that I don't think you're going to see another shutdown. Now, this deal includes $1.375 billion for 55 miles of fences along the border, compared with the $5.7 billion Trump had sought for more than 200 miles of walls. The deal omits a strict new cap Democrats had sought on immigrants detained within the United States as, as opposed to at the border. At the same time, it limits overall levels of detention beds maintained by the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, although GOP aides said ICE would have enough money and flexibility to maintain its current detention levels and add more when needed. To avert a shutdown, the deal needs to be written into final legislation, passed by both the House and Senate, and signed into law by the President. Now, funding lapsed in December after the President threatened to veto any plan that did not include the $5.7 billion to build his proposed border wall and deterred GOP lawmakers from voting to keep the government open. The previous shutdown, which lasted 35 days, was the longest in US history. Hundreds of thousands of workers were furloughed, while others in essential services, such as hospital care, air traffic control and law enforcement, worked without pay. The cost to the US economy was estimated at $11 billion. Now, the Trump administration says the US president still wants to meet China's Xi Jinping in an effort to end the trade war, a sign of optimism as negotiators from the world's two biggest economies start their latest round of talks this week. He wants to meet with President Xi very soon, White House advisor Kellyanne Conway said on Monday. This president wants a deal. He wants it to be fair to Americans and American workers and American interests. Uncertainty whether the leaders will meet to finalise an agreement has stoked concerns that negotiations are faltering as the March 1st deadline approaches. And if there's no deal by then, President Donald Trump has threatened to more than double the rate of tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese imports. However, Trump said this week that he would consider postponing the March deadline for tariffs if the US and China can reach a trade deal soon. 
He softened his stance on the trade battle with China, saying he's open to letting the deadline slide, although he'd prefer not to do it. He said Beijing very much wants to make a deal and has a big team in China trying to reach a resolution. Negotiators from the two countries are meeting this week in Beijing, with US officials pressing China to commit to deeper reforms to state-driven economic model that they say hurts American companies. Mid-level officials began discussions on Monday in preparations for two days of talks starting on Thursday, involving US Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He. Now, the world is entering an age of unprecedented environmental breakdown that could see an economic collapse like the 2008 financial crisis, a think tank has warned. According to a report from the Institute for Public Policy Research, climate change is just one of many environmental threats. It said that natural systems were now being stabilised so quickly by human activity that dangerous tipping points would soon be reached. Rising global temperatures would have consequences which threaten major economic, social and political disruption, according to the report, including increasing weather extremes, large-scale migration, conflict and famine. Now to Australia, and Labor has demanded immediate law changes to follow the Banking Royal Commission's shock findings made public last week, and it's even called for extra sitting days in Parliament. The opposition acknowledges some legislation will require extra time, but Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen accused the government of putting off action until after the election because it was more concerned with itself. Defence Minister Christopher Pine, the government leader in the House of Reps, told ABC's Insiders on Sunday it would take time to draft those 40 pieces of legislation to get them right. It will be after the election, yes, Mr Pine said. Mr Bowen told reporters, We have the Leader of the House saying yesterday nothing will happen until after the election, no legislation, no implementation until after the election. We in the Labor Party prepare to sit extra time. Mr Bowen considered there are parts of the Royal Commission that will take, in fairness, extra time. But he said there were some areas which could be dealt with immediately, such as the grandfathering of commissions and eliminating the hawking of financial products. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg began the government's official response by announcing the expert panel to review the effectiveness of Finance Industry Monitoring Agency, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. It will be headed by former competition regulator Graham Samuel and include former Westpac executive Diane Smith-Gander and former New Zealand Reserve Bank executive Grant Spencer. And the ANZ, Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index, slumped 3.4% last week to 114.1%, leaving it at the lowest level in three months. Sentiment towards current economic conditions fell by 3.2%, its first fall in four weeks, while future economic conditions fell by a slightly larger 3.8%. But it was a different story for the Westpac MI index, which rose 4.3% to 103.8%, recovering after falling to a multi-year low in January. Expectations that the RBA may cut rates again were cited as a catalyst behind the sharp improvement. And loans to housing investors dropped to a seven-year low in December as banks remained cautious and a declining residential market dampened appetite for credit. Lending to households fell 4.4% December 2018, seasonally adjusted according to the first release of a new Australian Bureau of Statistics figures, which combines figures of lending to households and business. The fall in lending to households in December follows a 2.4% fall in November 2018. But business conditions rebounded in January, lessening the risk of a pronounced slowdown in hiring and investment in the months ahead. According to the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey, the conditions index rose four points to seven, partially recovering 
having fallen by the most since the GFC in December. NAB is forecasting the next interest move will be beyond 2020, but if the Reserve Bank does alter policy, it's more likely to be a cut as business confidence and conditions lose momentum. And Australian digital bank UBank says its world-first digital home loan application assistant powered by artificial intelligence will be available in Australia for the first time in late February. UBank, the NAB's digital and online consumer arm, says MIA, short for My Interactive Agent, will begin taking customer questions in late February with the aim of creating a smarter, simpler home loan application experience. Created in partnership with FaceMe, a provider of AI-powered digital humans for customer service, Ubank says MIA represents a leap forward in chatbot technology and gives a digital face to its home loan experience. Ubank boasts that MIA is the ultimate Ubank team member with in-depth product knowledge and a cheeky personality, even using fun GIFs and animations during her chats. The bank says customers will speak directly to MIA via their desktop or mobile device to ask questions about the home loan applications. Anything from what's a variable rate to what classifies as an expense. A new bank says customers will be able to speak to MIA day and night and she'll answer more than 300 of the most common questions customers have about the home loan application journey so they'll have a smarter, more connected experience. The bank says the MIA persona was crafted with a customer in mind. They want to talk to someone smart, empathetic, trustworthy and someone that doesn't use bank jargon. And Australia's largest pastoral company says it's lost thousands of cattle in unprecedented flooding, including almost 30,000 head on one of its Gulf of Carpentaria stations alone. The Australian agricultural company runs more than half a million cattle across 24 stations and feedlots in Queensland and the Northern Territory to breed and fatten stock for export consumption. In a statement to the Australian Stock Exchange, AACO said its 2,500 square kilometre Wandula station, 130 kilometres south of Normanton, had experienced its highest flood levels ever, forcing the evacuation of station staff from the property as water rose to the eaves of buildings. The property is located between the Flinders and Saxby rivers, where breeding cattle usually graze the floodplain grasses that naturally grow after a wet season. Last week, the Flinders River broke its both its bank and its rainfall records when hundreds of millimetres of rain fell within several days upstream of the station. AACO Managing Director Hugh Killen said the losses of cows and calves had been extreme. And the profit reporting season is in full swing. Here are the latest profits. Amcor's profit after tax of US $328.5 million was 3.4% higher than last year on a constant currency basis. JB Hi-Fi, Australia's largest electronics retailer, defied the downturn in the housing market to lift interim net profit by 5.5% to $160.1 million and forecast better than expected full-year earnings. The $147 billion future fund has delivered a 5.8% return for the 2018 calendar year, a performance that significantly exceeded the strongest performing superannuation funds over the year. Horizons interim net profits fell 19% to $227 million as earnings in both the company's rail networks and coal haulage businesses declined as it absorbed the impact of a new agreement with its Queensland regulator. House and land developer A.V. Jennings has blamed political uncertainty, sensationalist media coverage of the housing outlook and a relatively sudden slowdown in bank lending for a 90% plunge in profits. The developer, which sells house and land lots in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, reported a profit of $1.42 million for the half year into December 31, down 
from 15.48 million in the previous corresponding period. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's after-tax statutory profit came in at 203.2 million, up 0.2%. Transurban reported a 56% fall in interim net profit to $145 million. The interim profit at Australia's biggest annuities provider, Challenger, in the six months ended December 31st, collapsed to 6.1 million from 195.4 million in the year earlier period. Recon reported a 6% decline in revenue from 80.3 million to 75.4 million for the 12 months of December 31st. Macquarie Group has reiterated its profit guidance for another record year after a satisfactory December quarter, as it confirmed its chief executive has formally been classified as suspect by German authorities looking into alleged tax fraud scandal. At an operational briefing for investors on Tuesday, Chief Executive Shimara Wickramanayake reaffirmed guidance for a lift in profit of up to 15% and updated the market on regulatory matters, including the German probe. Last year, the bank made a profit of $2.56 billion, so the guidance suggests it's on track for a profit of $2.94 billion for its current financial year, which ends in March. Tabcor reported an underlying profit of $210.6 million for the six months to December 31st, double last year's result. CSL reported 10% rise in net profit, $161 million. Charter Hall reported a statutory profit of $42.2 million, down 23.8% from the previous year's $55.4 million. Beach Energy reported a 199% increase in net profit after tax to $279 million. In the six months ended December 31st, car sales profit dropped 82% to $11.1 million from $60.58 million in the year earlier period. Virgin reported a jump in statutory profit after tax to $73.8 million in the six months ended December 31st. Radio broadcaster and esports business HTE reported a full year profit of $36.7 million, up 23%. ALE Property Group reported net profit after tax of $5.6 million. And that's it for this week. And next week, I talk to Ben Kearney, the CEO of the Australian Lottery and News Agents Association, or ALNA. Australia's national industry body for the newsagent industry. He'll talk to us all about the newsagent's industry and how it's evolving. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 